Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The thread of international trade and commerce is supposed to knit the world together. But recently, tensions have been pulling at that fabric. First, America and China needled each other with tariffs. Then the COVID-19 pandemic impeded flow of goods and supply chains. Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February sent commodity prices soaring and severed crucial links in the global economy. Now there's a new crisis. If you have felt some pain as stocks sold off, you're not alone. Stock market. It was another unsettling week for the stock market with all three major indices falling Friday. How does the the rest of the world deal with King Dollar at a time when the economy globally is deteriorating, at a time when energy bills are crimping the potential growth of nations worldwide, and when a Federal Reserve is dead set on raising rates? In the past week, havoc's been raging in the markets as they reacted to tightening by central banks. All this is having a knock-on effect on growth expectations. The OECD predicts global GDP will rise just 3% this year. In 2023, it expects growth of 2.2%. The outlook is once again causing alarm. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, bringing you the show from the World Trade Organization's public forum in Geneva. This week, we're asking, in times of economic turmoil, can global trade help? How to stop the multilateral trading system from fraying is the task of the WTO and its Director General, Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala. And with The Economist's economics editor, Henry Kerr, I've travelled to the WTO's headquarters to meet her. We're on the shores of the glassy waters of Lake Geneva, where the WTO has been since it was created in 1995, with a mandate to ensure that global trade flows as smoothly, predictably and freely as possible. It witnessed the heady days of rapid globalisation in the early noughties and welcomed China into the fold in 2001. But economic integration stalled, trade wars ensued and dissatisfaction with globalisation grew. That left a question mark over the role and efficacy of the WTO. Dr Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala, a former finance minister in her native Nigeria, took office as a seventh director general in March 2021. She is its first female and African leader, and on her first day, she promised to reboot and reinvigorate the organization. I want to see a WTO that focuses on people because I simply believe that as an organizing principle, if that's the purpose you have, your, your vision and strategy will build around that. Henry and I interviewed Dr Ngozi in front of a live audience at the WTO's Public Forum, an annual gathering of politicians, NGOs and the private sector, to talk all things trade. Director General Dr Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you, Anne. 
So, Dr. Ngozi, the WTO was set up in 1995 to promote globalization after the end of the Cold War, a time of immense change in the world. But if we look at the past decade, globalization itself has taken a lot of blows, hasn't it? There's much more dissatisfaction with the multilateral trading system. We've had trade wars driven by Donald Trump, but exacerbated elsewhere. And of course, the impacts of COVID-19 restricting those cross-border flows of capital goods and people, and now the invasion of Ukraine and the supply shocks that have come out of that. It doesn't sound like a very cheerful recipe. But how do you rate the state of globalization and the trading system today, or do we need a rethink? I want to say there was a golden age of globalization, like you said, uh, when China and uh, many of the Eastern European countries were being integrated into the world's multilateral trading system. That golden age delivered a lot of dividends lifting more than a billion people out of poverty. And as that integration has wound down, of course, we've noticed a bit of flatlining of globalization, which started even before the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. And with the geopolitical tensions that we see manifesting, many people then think this is the end of globalization. There's a lot of talk of decoupling, fragmentation. So, yes, it is... uh, Not in a very good place, but is it dead? The answer is no. And we should be very careful when we talk about fragmentation and decoupling because the costs of this are immense. I think we're going to dive into that in in just a moment. I just wanted to stay for a thought on the world economy. It does look like a particularly unstable new phase that we're in at the moment. We obviously have those European energy costs soaring, the high interest rates in the US and the knock-on effects elsewhere, including this week in the UK. It does mean that growth forecasts have been receding. And I wondered what you feel that this organisation, the WTO, can do to mitigate these uh, stresses when so many of the signs seem to have a big R for global recession in front of them. Times are difficult. And you've said it all. We are facing multiple exogenous shocks to the global economy, from the climate crisis to Ukraine to the pandemic, high energy prices, high food prices, all of them coming at the same time. And rising interest rates, which are central banks are struggling all over the world to try and contain inflationary pressures, is feeding into parts of the problem. There's potential debt distress. Trying to cure one also leads to some other side effects. And uh, emerging markets and developing countries are also raising interest rates. So, yes, you said the R word. I'm not very optimistic, let's put it that way, with respect to that R word. There's definitely a slow, slowing of the global economy is evident. And maybe we'll get to the R word. Some people don't want to hear, at least some countries may experience it. For trade and the WTO, what have we been trying to do to be part of the solution? I would point to the very successful ministerial conference we had where members took a number of decisions that are very helpful with respect to various aspects of this. When you look at food prices, for instance, uh, members have declared their intention to keep down export restrictions 
and prohibitions to allow a freer flow of trade in food. That should help. They removed all restrictions on humanitarian supplies for the World Food Program. So that should also help the situation. And the food situation is, in fact, very worrying for next year. So the WTO members have also made decisions on sustainability and supply of fish stocks, which is also part of food, in trying to curb harmful fisheries subsidies that lead to overfishing and illegal and unreported fishing. That was a major decision after a whole decade of trying to come to agreement on that. Various things on vaccines, there was a positive decision. So I think we've offered quite a few solutions that may be helpful. If there's a uh, a worry about the WTO at the moment, it's that it's toothless. When we look back at those agreements, specifically the food security agreement, is it a problem that that agreement lacks enforcement mechanisms? Can we trust agreements that don't have teeth? Well, some of the agreements have teeth. The fisheries subsidies agreement has teeth. The vaccine intellectual property waiver agreement has teeth. It's a decision. And we have the declaration on food. Yes, that is a declaration by members, their best intention. And it's not perfect, but I think it's a very good move in the right direction. And of course, we have our monitoring exercise, which keeps track of just how members are doing on these uh, declarations they've made. I'm briefly distracted by fishery agreements with teeth. I'm I'm having a bit of a Jaws moment here. Jaws, uh, maybe they are barracudas. Henry Henry might give us an indication whether he really thinks that that's a good metaphor for the global economy. Uh, We touched Henry uh, Kerr, our economics editor, who's writing about a lot of this in granular detail. We touched on transformation of supply chains, worries about that and the way that the pandemic also impacted on that. Henry, what would your angle be on that and what would the the question arising look like? Well, I think that the question at the moment that everyone's asking about supply chains is to what extent can we balance the goals of efficiency and resilience? And so I would ask Dr. Ngozi, how should we distinguish between what is a healthy diversification of supply chains in light of the risks that have been made apparent over the past few years and just an inefficient fragmentation of the global trading system? What's welcome? What's unwelcome? I think what is welcome is a diversification of supply chains that is also global in outlook. And uh, we have a term here that I'm using to describe that, calling it re-globalization. So why don't we see an opportunity in these vulnerabilities we've seen in supply chains? We have too much of a concentration of manufacturing in certain sectors and certain products. So whilst we are trying to manage risk and build resilience. Let's use that as the means to bring in those members, those countries that have been marginalized, those peoples that have been marginalized. That's a good diversification strategy. I think what we should be a little bit leery of is when we talk about reshoring, even French shoring. Reshoring is not a good risk management strategy because you can reshore, and if you have an event, a climate event, let's say, that can impact what happens with that particular sector of product if it's all reshored into one place. And French shoring, the same, just be careful of that balance between how you diversify. Is it uncomfortable that the global economy is in a moment where the dollar is very, very strong? We mentioned earlier the monetary tightening behind that, and that that amplifies, in a sense, the protectionist instincts 
of, of some countries who are under economic stress as a result. Is it uncomfortable for the multilateral trading system that's trying to manage these instincts to reshore and, and, and so on, that essentially American monetary policy is spilling across borders in a way that's harming other countries? I'm not sure it's only American monetary policy that is spilling across borders. I think there are various other monetary and fiscal policies of developed countries that are clearly spilling across borders. And that's the tight balancing act that central banks and fiscal authorities have to play in the developed countries. Because what they do matters so much for other countries, for emerging markets and developing countries. You know, think about the debt burdens and potential debt distress, the flight of capital to safety in the developed countries away from emerging markets, the debt service burdens, the double-digit interest rates that are being seen in some of these countries in response to what's going on elsewhere. So yes, it does pose problems. I'm very sympathetic because this is a time in which all the instruments of management of the macroeconomy, I think fiscal and monetary policy authorities really have to talk to each other. Uh, to make sure that they're managing in sync in order to avoid dislocations inside, but impact on others. I was very curious about re-globalisation. That's quite a big ask at a time when so many trends seem to be pushing in the opposite directions. The objection might be that there are winners and losers from any kind of supply chain reset. Look, I use the term to describe a trend that was to some extent beginning to happen because of high labor costs in China. Uh, there was already a move before the pandemic and the war. We were seeing moves to Vietnam, to Cambodia, to Laos, to Bangladesh of some of this. So what we want is to expand that, deconcentrating manufacturing to other developing countries. And I hear more talk of it. We haven't seen the actual evidence because of all the hits and dislocations in the world, but I hear more businesses considering this and some governments making a conscious plan to attract these supply chains into their countries. A good example, the pharmaceutical supply chain. You'd be interested to know that uh, Africa, which the continent was importing 99% of its vaccines, 90% of its uh, pharmaceuticals, and now we are seeing the establishment of manufacturing capacity for vaccines on the continent and a potential pharmaceutical industry deconcentrating into the continent. So that kind of thing is what we're talking about. There are countries that are doing well where you can locate these supply chains. So that's what I'm saying by re-globalization. Are you convinced, Henry? Well, what I'm always trying to figure out is the extent to which we're giving up Ricardo and the extent to which we're not when we think about the gains from trade. I mean, it is true, I think, that there is a trade-off somewhere you seem confident in the ability of trade to help with problems such as global inequality, for example. But I don't know, when I was studying economics, we always talked about an equality efficiency trade-off. So is it the case that you are embracing a trade-off just to a little degree? Look, equality efficiency trade-off, if this is well managed, we can do both. We can be as efficient. It may not be the most Pareto optimal, but there's a degree of efficiency we can have that also enables us to have a degree of equity. You know, Mariana Mazzucato says that governments should shape markets and not just respond and talk about market failures. Why don't we shape the way that this is happening so we can deliver a degree of efficiency along with a degree of equity? Trade is certainly an instrument. If we pursue this diversification strategy, reglobalization, we can create jobs. 
in places that don't have jobs. We can raise incomes in places that don't have those incomes. We can do it sustainably. And that's what the purpose of the WTO says in the Marrakesh preamble, uh, the agreement that set up the WTO, that it should be about people, about enhancing living standards, creating employment, supporting sustainable development. And I strongly believe we can do it. Let's uh, move on to talk a bit about one of the world's most important trading relationships, that between the US and China. Your economists at the WTO predicted in the long run, splitting the world into two separate trading blocks based around these great powers could lead to a 5% decrease in real global GDP. And you've warned a lot about decoupling. So step one to decoupling would obviously be a reduction in the tariffs that currently exist in both directions on US-China trade. Do you think there's any realistic prospect of those tariffs being lifted? That's a difficult one because it's not really about trade policy, it's about politics. And when it's about politics, it's difficult to predict which direction it's going to go. From the WTO standpoint, we would like to see those tariffs being looked at and and going in the right direction. But politically, we are hearing a lot of tension, a lot of geopolitical tension. That doesn't make it sound very promising. Um, I'll leave it at that. So it's more politics than trade policy at this point in time. But let me just add one thing. If you look at the 2021 figures for trade between U.S. and China, they're almost at the peak that we saw in 2018. The U.S. exports to China about 150 or so billion and imports from China at $542 billion. That's very near the 2018 peak that we saw. So whilst this rhetoric and this hot geopolitical tension is going on, the facts on the ground with respect to the volume and value of trade is a little bit different. The WTO's position in dispute resolution is a kind of central plank of the trading system. But that has come under a lot of stress as well. If we look back to 2017, when America rejected the system in various ways and continues to block some relevant appointments here, the idea is to have a renewed, reboosted system up and running by 2024. What do you think the state of that dispute settlement agreement is now? And what chance do you see of convincing America to change its tune? Well, it is true that the dispute settlement system has been semi-paralyzed, if you want to use that word, or not functioning properly because of the appellate body uh, not functioning. That is true. And it's true that it's a central part of what the WTO is about. But that does not mean that there haven't been disputes, a settlement going on within the organization. So I just want to correct that, that whilst we have an, a problem with the appellate body, the panel, the first level or layer, has been listening to disputes. There are seven new ones that have been brought this year. There are 20 ongoing panel reviews that are happening as we speak. And there are also other alternative dispute resolution mechanisms that members have been using, arbitration, mediation, several of those are going on. The way people think that nothing is happening with dispute resolution, it's not true. That being said, 
it is obvious that we have to work hard to reform the dispute settlement system, both to take care of the concerns of all members. So it's not only the U.S., but they're also developing countries that have concerns about the way it functions. And it's been agreed during the 12th ministerial in June to set 2024 as kind of timeline to guide members towards reforming the system. Let me just say that some technical discussions are ongoing on the dispute uh, settlement system, including the appellate body. Technical discussions are being held by the United States, so they are beginning to also move. And we hope that we can move to reform the system and really deliver. The fundamental principle of the WTO, I suppose, is that trade should be governed by rules, not power. You mentioned there the concerns that developing countries have about the way the system operates and your optimism for solving them. But do you think the Chinese-American relationship as it is, that actually you can get to a place where their power doesn't exert itself so much, given that America can hold up the dispute resolution mechanism, given that these countries can disregard the most favoured nation principle and put tariffs on each other? How do you overcome that raw power? Well, it's not only the U.S. or China that can hold things up at the WTO, and I think that's the beauty. It's a consensus organization, so any country, even the smallest, can hold things up, and they have when they do not agree. So it's good because it gives each country a voice. Of course, it does have its drawbacks that if you have to have a consensus system, whether you're a big country like China or the U.S. or a small one, everybody needs to agree. But... I'll just cite the example of the 12th Ministerial. In spite of all the tensions, which I fully acknowledge, whether it's between what is caused by the the war in Ukraine, whether it's China-US tension or Europe-China, whatever it is, all members were able to come together in June, not so long ago, to agree to more than 10 full-fledged legal agreements, decisions, declarations of various degrees, all multilateral. So having them all around the table in spite of these tensions shows that multilateralism is not dead. And the WTO is a good example that it can still work. And that gives us hope. I mean, it's not robust elsewhere. We know that uh, it's under attack, but we've shown it can work in spite of tensions. It's hard to say that you're not a resilient person and since, you've, <laughs> since you've come into post. Your resilience is, has been tested. But I suppose I might ask, Henry, if you, hearing what you've just heard across the last half hour or so, what would you see as specific problems that you think the WTO will be facing if we were to meet here a, a, again in perhaps in the next year, year or so? And where do you think it needs to focus particularly to address those? I would share Dr Ngozi's, I think, slight pessimism, it was fair to say, about the prospects for the global economy. And I think the big question is the extent to which that interacts with the geopolitical tensions that are on the rise and the need to overcome the barriers to progress within the WTO caused by the China-US rift, which is only being exacerbated by the war in Ukraine. So it's, it's that combination of geopolitical tensions and now economic pain that I think the multilateral system has to cope with. All I can tell you is it will not be easy. But I want to just say we don't have a choice. We really need to think hard and and agree that global solidarity is needed to solve the problems that are confronting us. As with the global economy slowing down, as you said, with high energy prices, the pandemic not gone away, climate change, all of these problems are not really solvable by any one country on its own. 
So that global solidarity is needed. And I hope that here at the WTO, we can continue to show a good example that multilateralism is not dead, it's strong. We can make agreements. We can help to solve some of these problems. So that's my hope. Now, is it going to be easy? No, it's not going to be easy to push this solidarity to agree on how we manage our global economies, on you know what we need to do to avoid the big R. But it's doable. If we allow ourselves to fall into pessimism, it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You've been here in your post at WTO since uh, March 1st, 2021. Certainly quite a time to take over a major international organisation. What's the most important lesson or insight that you've learned in that time that maybe would not have been the case if you'd come into the job in quieter times in the global economy? What has been most interesting to me is that you come into a system where trust is broken and weak, uh, where seemingly things are not moving. And what has been pleasant is that the ability to try to recreate some of that trust and to get members working again, I saw it happen in front of me. It was not a given. And it really makes for a lot of hope. And I'm quite grateful to the members and to the staff of the Secretariat for the hard work that got us to where we are. So resilience, we have resilience at the WTO. A final quick question then. The WTO has been around for 27 years. What would you say is the big picture where you are going to ensure it remains fit for the future? It's been around for more than that. People forget GATT. I always think about it as 75 years or 77, whatever it is. We recognize that we ourselves need to be reformed. WTO reform is big on the agenda of every member. The first thing is to admit that you need to reform yourself so you can be fit for the 21st century. And members are fully aware of that. We need to update our rules. We need to make new rules to underpin digital trade because the future of trade is digital, it's services, it's green, and it should be inclusive. To do all of that, we need to focus on how the world is changing and update our rules and make new rules to fit that. We need to look at level playing field issues and see how we update our rules to take care of that. To my own distress, I'm old enough to remember covering GATT talks after the end of Comic-Con and the Cold War. But I think we'll pass lightly over those memories. Uh, uh, thank you so much indeed uh, for joining us, Director General Ngozi okonjo iwila and for hosting us here today in Geneva at the WTO. Well, thank you so much, Anna, and thank you, Henry. It's a delight to have you. And can I thank our audience as well here live in Geneva? Thank you. And do let us know what you think. If you could reboot the global trading system, what would you do? And who do you think will be the winners and the losers in this changing world order? Write to us at podcasteconomist.com or you can tweet us at The Economist. You can read more reporting on the state of the world's economy from Henry and the rest of The Economist's business and finance team on our website. And this week, our sister podcast, Money Talks, looks at the violent reaction in the markets to higher interest rates and what can be done to lessen the pain. Listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts. But the only way to stay truly up to date with all of our journalism is to become a subscriber. Sign up today and you'll get a special introductory offer for our listeners. Visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. 
My producer is Alicia Burrell and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy and in Geneva, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.